This is The Re-Education with Eli Lake. Today's show is about the art and the artist. And later on, we will have an interview with author and art historian, Victoria Coates. The saxophone you are hearing in the background is the unmistakable sound of Kenny G, a sound that is unmistakably terrible, the musical equivalent of artificial maple syrup, sweet, sticky, empty calories. This is the audio backdrop today of shopping malls, dentist offices, and corporate guest apartment lobbies. In China, the authorities play this song to signal the end of a dreary workday. The fact that for the last 40 years, this dreck has been categorized by streaming services, radio stations, and his record label as smooth jazz is an affront to both jazz and smoothness. Wouldn't it be nice if the man who has committed these crimes against a great American art form was also a reprobate? Sadly, this is just not the case. As a 2021 HBO documentary from Penny Lane demonstrates, the musician-born Ken Gorelick is a devoted father. He worked hard to earn his fortune and invested wisely. He was an early investor in Starbucks. He's a scratch golfer, and he treats his many fans with respect and dignity. Kenny G is a good man. There's anything wrong with hard work. That's a hard lick, and I just played it really well. Putting in the reps and then reaping the reward of, hey, I'm really good at this. And that seems, well, unfair. So many great artists often turn out to be scoundrels. We've all seen behind the music. It's almost a cliche. Just consider the life of a real visionary, a musical genius, Miles Davis. Miles revolutionized music in the 20th century. First, after the rise of bebop with the invention of a West Coast cool sound. Then, with a modal approach to song composition and improvisation. And finally, when he introduced electric instruments to jazz and what later became known as fusion. The Miles Davis catalog contains multitudes. His brilliance elevated jazz music. He helped to make it a global cultural force that won hearts and minds in the middle of the Cold War and inspires musicians to this day. Miles Davis was also a violent egomaniac. He struggled with hard drugs and alcohol for most of his life. He beat two of his wives. For a period of his career, he had such contempt for his fans that he would perform with his back turned to the audience during his concerts. According to his autobiography, Miles once poured a bottle of Heineken on his electric guitar player during a rehearsal. When he complained that he could have been electrocuted, Miles responded, then play the note right next time. Miles is not an outlier. Look at the Beatles. One half of the genius songwriting duo, Paul McCartney, has led an exemplary life. He's a vegan. He is generous with charities. He seems genuinely humble in interviews. Paul McCartney seems to really deserve his fame and fortune. Then there's John Lennon. We're listening to Run For Your Life from one of the greatest albums ever made, Rubber Soul. And in the lyrics, Lennon is telling on himself promising to kill a promiscuous lover if she cheats on him. This came from a real place for John Lennon. In one of his last interviews in 1980, he told Playboy magazine, I used to be cruel to women and physically any woman. I was a hitter. I couldn't express myself and I hit. I fought men and I hit women. So the man who urged his audience to imagine a world with no countries, wars, or borders beat up girls as a young man. The list of great artists who were bad men is long. Paul Gauguin raped Tahitian girls who posed for his paintings. Norman Mailer stabbed his wife. Charlie Parker abandoned his family. But it would be foolish to cancel Gauguin 
Mailer, Lennon, Miles, or Bird for their personal failings. Their works are a gift to humanity, even though the men who made them were so deeply flawed. The question of what to do about great artists who are bad men gets trickier when we move from the past to the present. Bill, R&B superstar R. Kelly, once a national global celebrity convicted on every count in the indictment, racketeering and sex trafficking. He was found guilty on the first full day of deliberations. It was a quick verdict, which is always a bad sign for the defense. For the government and the victims, vindication for allegations that go back decades. Today's guilty verdict forever brands R. Kelly as a predator who used his fame and fortune to prey on the young, the vulnerable, and the voiceless for his own sexual gratification. Kelly was found guilty of all nine counts in the indictment, racketeering and sex trafficking, specifically arranging sexual encounters with underage victims across state lines. Robert Sylvester Kelly will soon be sentenced after his conviction in September for nine counts of racketeering and sex trafficking. He faces at least 10 years in prison and he deserves his fate R. Kelly lured women to his compound, raped them, and filmed their torment. As the 2019 Lifetime documentary methodically reports, R. Kelly, over a period of nearly three decades, destroyed young women for his own twisted sexual gratification. The anguish of the families trying to rescue their daughters was palpable. R. Kelly is a monster. A few years back, some of his victims began a movement, Mute R. Kelly. That pressured radio stations to stop playing his music, the industry to stop honoring him, record companies to end their relationships with him. As Dreamhampton, the filmmaker who made that Lifetime documentary, told the New York Times last year, R. Kelly has experienced a kind of social death in which corporations and everyday members of society Exercise instructors, Uber drivers, backyard barbecue DJs make a collective decision to stop embracing an artist. But has that really happened? You can still find R. Kelly's catalog on all of the major streaming platforms. Spotify did announce last year that it wouldn't feature him in their curated playlists, but they still stream his music and his music remains quite popular. R. Kelly is one of the top 500 artists watched on YouTube and streamed on major platforms. R. Kelly is in a sense both canceled and not canceled. He will likely spend the rest of his life in prison as he deserves to, but his music is still widely available and loved. Bill Cosby obviously faces a similar fate. Here comes the kicker, you ready? Here's the fact that I heard but haven't confirmed, I heard that when Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said he had a dream, he was speaking into a PA system that Bill Cosby paid for. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is this, he rapes, but he saves. And he saves more than he rapes, but he probably does rape. We all know the awful truth about Cosby's sexual predations at the peak of his fame. He drugged his prey and raped them. He eventually went to jail for those crimes until a court overturned his conviction on appeal. Today, most streaming services don't carry the Cosby show or his comedy specials, though you can purchase them on Amazon and you can find his clips on YouTube. Cosby, like R. Kelly, has not been erased from the internet. Perhaps the social death sentence is not a death sentence at all. Rather, there's a period of time in our culture where we reassess an artist's standing based on their own awful deeds. Social pressure mounts not to feature the artist, but over time, the stigma passes. Their work is reassessed. Look at Louis C.K. He masturbated in front of other female comedians in a hotel room. I don't mean to compare Louis' perversions to the predations of Cosby or Kelly, but when his scandal emerged at the height of Me Too, Louis was ruined. His 2017 film, I Love You, Daddy, was yanked from distribution. When he tried stand-up again at the end of 2018, comedy clubs were pressured to cancel his dates. Even some of his peers insisted that his cancellation remain. 
And yet last month, Louis C.K. won a Grammy for his 2021 comedy special that he financed and streamed on his own. Does this mean that as a society, we are now more tolerant of sexual harassment than we were five years ago? I don't think so. Rather, I think it's a recognition of an old maxim that's really a cliche. Separate the art from the artist. This rule does not mean that musicians, filmmakers, novelists are above the law. If they commit crimes, they should face the consequences. But it does mean that we have to recognize that life is not fair. The most talented play by different rules. They always have. Stars usually get to do what they wish. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. <laughs> Whatever you want. Canceling geniuses of the past and present because of their awful behavior might make the world more equitable. But it also impoverishes our culture. By canceling these scoundrels, we punish ourselves and future generations. It's something we already know. Think of the term diva. It means both a singer with a dazzling voice as well as a temperamental, self-absorbed egotist. If you work at a Kinko's, you can't act like a diva because there are a thousand people who can also do your job. But if you're Whitney Houston, you can smoke crack, show up late for gigs, and say crazy things in interviews because only you can do what you do. When you're a star, we let you do it. Genius does not correlate to character. Great artists can be bad friends, impossible bosses, or selfish psychopaths. The best we can do is to tell the truth, no matter how awful, about the people who produce our favorite songs, movies, paintings, and novels. So don't expect your cultural heroes to be good people. When a genius turns out to be a saint, treat it as a pleasant surprise. Because for every Paul McCartney, there is a John Lennon. For every Miles Davis, there's this guy. So sorry you had to hear this direct. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of The Reeducation with Eli Lake. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to the spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and use offer code LAKE. I just want to say, I've been reading The Spectator for years. They have some of my favorite writers, everyone from Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Christopher Buckley, and Julie Bindel, who's terrific. So I can't say enough about it, and I would recommend listeners to this podcast to give it a whirl. The Spectator is less political party and a more cocktail party. And whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained and enlightened from cover to cover. And that's really a big part of the theme of our show here at The Reeducation is to say that we are interested in debate, we're interested in testing assumptions, and we're interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints and not just simply reinforcing ideological dogma. And that's just like The Spectator. So again, Go to spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and the offer code LAKE. I cannot recommend it enough. 
Well, we at The Re-Education are delighted to have Victoria Coates today. She is uh, a pretty remarkable woman in Washington because she is a former deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration, focusing on the Middle East and North Africa. But she is also an art historian uh, whose book, David Sling, A History of Democracy and Ten Works of Art, is really a must read. And a few months ago for the National Review wrote an, a fascinating essay on Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and how they created, you know, the Mona Lisa and the David in the same year, 1503, and how this was sort of the beginning of uh, a trajectory that led to what we now today would kind of call contemporary art and those ideas. So thank you so much for joining the re-education, Victoria. It's so great to have you. Well, it's really good to be with you again, Eli, and congratulations on launching the new podcast. Oh, thank you so much. So let's just jump into it. What what would you say as somebody who has studied the history of art? It seems that there's really no kind of correlation between great artists and whether they are also great people, whether and what do we do when we have significant and important artists who have done terrible things? Well, it's it's a fascinating question and you know, I thought about it a great deal. It has, I think, particularly in the West, it has its roots in what we would consider to be a very desirable thing, which is the the value of the individual. And what the National Review piece, when, when David met Lisa, gets after is how Leonardo and Michelangelo manipulated the the projects, the Mona Lisa and the David, to make them self-reflective, to make them about them. Right. And so, you know, you don't think about the, I mean, nobody knows Giocondo or Step Sodorini, who are the patrons of those two things respectively, who would have been in the past, the celebrated figures, but they flipped that paradigm on its head. And I think that has had perhaps the unintended consequence of magnifying the role of the artist until there becomes this kind of moral quandary, because if this is the reflection of the creator and the creator has some rotten characteristics, right. is then the creation rotten? Well, I, I want to maybe just step back a little bit, because you get into this idea that before Leonardo and Michelangelo, there really wasn't a concept of an artist. They were treated more as artisans, as kind of craftsmen. Can you talk a little bit about that? The idea that they work for a patron, they're, they're, the, the, the goal of, of somebody who was a painter was to capture best the subject or to capture a scene from the Bible. And why, why in that moment was we start to sort of see a, a revolution, really, that, that, that says, no, actually, art is the concept inside the artist's mind that then shares with the world. You know, I actually blame Dante for this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know you mentioned that in the essay. <laughs> it's an easy thing to do. Yeah. It, it, in the course of, of the Divine Comedy, he reflects repeatedly on human, human creativity. And in Purgatorio starts to propose this notion that human creativity and divine creativity are reflections of each other, that, that the closest hum, humanity can come to the divine while on this earth, in this sphere, is to create. And so that then, he, was, he, he of course was talking about poets, but he was also very aware of the fine arts. Giotto appears in the, in the poem, for example. And so, so this notion from Dante kind of metastasizes through the Italian Renaissance and then spreads north. And you know you have other, a number of, of great Northern artists such as Durer who em- embrace it. And they very self-consciously shift themselves out of the manual artist sphere into the sort of divine creativity sphere. And it's a remarkable leap, if you think about it, that you've gone in a basically 150-year period from being somebody who works with their hands as a conduit of the desires of your patron to being the equivalent of the divine. But that's really what Michelangelo and, and Leonardo were bringing to its logical Renaissance era conclusion. And and you really demonstrate this when you're talking about the Mona Lisa and Leonardo da Vinci, because originally this was commissioned as a portrait of Lisa Gerardini, the wife of a, of a, of a wealthy merchant who commissioned the painting. And 
Leonardo da Vinci kind of makes this radical decision. He will not, he, he returns the money, he keeps it and works on it for the next 20 years. And when you say is at the end of it, it's no longer the rendering of this woman who lived in the 15th and 16th century. It's a reflection of the artist himself. Is that, is that, is that right? Absolutely. It's, it's the courtly ideal, which is what right. Leonardo worked very hard throughout his lifetime. He, he had tremendous disadvantages. He was illegitimate, probably homosexual, sort of, you know, on the outside of a lot of things. And he sort of recast himself. In many ways, he was his greatest creation as this incredible genius who could work across all fields, see all things, uh, an incredible creator. And I think the very calm, elegant, composed, a little bit distant image that is created by the Mona Lisa very much reflects what he wanted the outside world to perceive as him. And before everyone goes down the Leonardo and drag kind of uh, road, which has proven irresistible, it's it's not that. The female was the ideal for that. So he's he's projecting onto it, not in, not into no, it. no, it's an important point. And I, I just want to finally, and, and you say this at the end of your essay, but I think it's a really interesting point, which is that you can draw a straight line between 1503 and Marcel Duchamp's famous, I, I guess you could call it a sculpture known as Fountain, which for, for our, our listeners is a, a kind of mass produced urinal that he puts on the wall of a museum and says, this is art. And that is at that moment, we're seeing that art in this case is is what the artist kind of has says is the concept as opposed to the physical thing. Is that right? It is. And it's it's a, again a, a radical shift because right. the object at that point becomes secondary. And the object is a record of the creative act, which is the work of art. And so that's very much what Duchamp was saying. And it drove people crazy then as now. I mean, there is <laughs> There was a letter from an outraged art historian at Hillsdale saying, how can you do this? How can you, you know, how can you say that, you know, the degenerate Duchamp is in any way related to Michelangelo and Leonardo? And I understand. I'd much rather look at the David than the, the fountain. But at the same time, it, you know, it, this is what Duchamp was thinking. And you can like Duchamp, you can hate Duchamp, but he is certainly one of the most interesting artists of the 20th century because he understood that lineage. I mean, he understood his Dante and he knew exactly what he was doing. And that brings us now to separating the art from the artist. Now, now the, 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 the French social critic, Roland Bard, kind of is the proponent of all there is, is the text. All there is, is the work. And it doesn't really matter what the artist went through, or what the artist says about it. Once it's out in the world, it is up to the person who views it or consumes it to make sense of it. And that's how we should understand these things. But, you know, in many ways, you know, one could argue that when you're talking about someone like Paul Gauguin, who there's lots of credible information that says that he raped young Tahitian girls while he was living there in, in high style, he produced these works, which, you know, included kind of for the first time, these elements that were not reflection of sort of the landscape or anything like that, that were part of his own imagination that he added to it. So he's certainly important in terms of understanding the history of visual art, but he is a pederast and somebody who did terrible things and things that I think we would frown upon certainly today. And I think most people would have frowned upon at the time. Can you separate the, the, the sort of heinous acts of a Gauguin from his work and what does it mean for whether we should continue to show his work going forward? Well, in my opinion, yes, because you could only go back so far in this pattern. Right. Uh, if you go back, I mean, who knows? You know, the, 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 if you look at the Venus de Milo, for example, who knows if the person who carved that was a good person or a horrible person? Yet it is one of the most celebrated statues that survived from antiquity and has, you know, been one of the highlights of the Louvre since it was recovered in, in the late 19th century. So we could only go so far in our retrospective virtue signaling. You know, in the case of Gauguin, I think it's an important part of the scholarship. I think understanding, you know, post-impressionism and well, but his very romanticized views of Tahiti as a paradise where he can indulge his 
peccadillos, for want of a better word. Sexual predations. Let's... That, that's a little better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he is, is creating this sort of fantasy of this as an idealized state where these things are permissible. And, you know, if, if you don't understand what he was doing at the time, you, you can't really understand the art. So, you know, there, there, it, it's important to recognize it and to work it into one's analysis or one's appreciation. But at the same time, I think you can also simply say, I'm going to just judge this thing aesthetically. Do I think it is beautiful? Does it bring me joy or does it? You or know, does it help me understand abstract painters that come a few decades later? Right. I mean, it's, it's right. The, right. Uh, exactly. So. So but at, so it's fairly easy when we're talking about historical artists and historical genius that that and their misdeeds, terrible, terrible men who who made great art. But what do you do when, you know, we're we're in the here and now? And I'm thinking of in another area, Bill Cosby, who was certainly an incredibly important pioneer in stand-up comedy in America, produced one of the most important television shows, maybe in the history of television, in his Cosby show. And yet, if you go online or the streaming services, you really cannot find any works by Bill Cosby today. That is by no means to justify or to excuse. And I certainly wouldn't argue that he should not have faced, you know, the legal consequences of of his his own sexual predations and his own awful drugging and raping of women. But at the same time, um, what, what, why do you think we're in this moment? Is, is it, are we waiting for him to die so we can watch the Cosby show again so he wouldn't earn royalties from it? Or is there some social value in kind of saying, you know what, one of the punishments of society is that if you do something this terrible, we will no longer, you know, sort of display your works, if you will, in the kind of pantheon of Netflix. I, the problem I have with all of this is it, it appears to be highly selective. Okay. You know, Whitty is imposing the same kind of ban on Michael Jackson's music. And what Michael Jackson did was arguably worse than what Bill Cosby did. And yet his songs are still widely played. His videos are watched. I mean, everybody watches Thriller at, at Halloween and it doesn't even seem to be bad manners. So I think, I think if, if, if we're going to do this, if we're going to judge contemporary artists, you know, by their moral behavior, then we, we need to be consistent about it. And, you know, if somebody is revealed to have, you know, committed cr criminal acts of, of that depravity, you know, do we ban all of it? And I, that to me seems like a pretty slippery slope, again, because you know, we, we're doing that to our contemporary, you know, artists, be they musicians, actors, or fine artists, but but we we might be enjoying, you know, the the art of a slave holder, for example. Right. And even know it. I mean, we almost certainly are when we look at ancient Greek art and ancient Roman art, because slavery was a basic component of those societies. So, you know, how how do you go back and and justify that if you're going to impose a ban on contemporary artists? Well, I mean, it's interesting also because one could argue that. Uh, if we were to to ban Michael Jackson's music from streaming platforms and so forth, then we're really just punishing ourselves, right? I mean, his music is his music and we listen to it. But I think it gets a little bit trickier. And I want to try to ask you about this because, I mean, not everybody gets to the point where they're an artist that makes works that will be remembered after they're dead. In fact, very few do. And it's hard to sort of figure out, well, what what is considered to be, you know, this this art has social value versus, say, to give an example, someone like Charles Manson, who helped write a couple songs with the Beach Boys of all places, people, you know, but nobody kind of thinks of Charles Manson as a songwriter whose music we should listen to. He is uh, a mass murderer. He's a psychopath. So how do we draw that line? Because clearly there are going to be different rules for regular citizens and their behavior and artists who indulge in things that we frown upon, but if they produce something that is of that kind of value, it's a very tricky question. I mean, I don't know how do you, how would you approach that? Well, this is why I like my artists dead. <laughs> it's a lot easier to judge yeah. what, what stands the test of time. I mean, and there's a lot of, of second and third rate 
Renaissance art when you you know it when you see it. You're like, yeah, that guy probably doesn't need to be in one of the main galleries of the Uffizi, you know, whereas obviously Michelangelo, Leonardo and, and Raphael and that type do. So so you you always have this struggle with contemporary art about what's going to last. What's interesting is in the late 19th century, around the Gauguin time period, you have this shift from the kind of state-sponsored academic art being what is the most creative, the most the most excellent, to the avant-garde taking that role. Right. So, so you you have this 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 change, whereas what what it seems to be the most the most forward leaning is no longer the art of the establishment, and that contributes to some of that. It makes it very difficult as a as a collector or an observer to figure out, you know, what what is excellent, what should be preserved, what should be protected. And that definition also will change. Yes. And Over then, time, th- Toulouse-Lautrec was made posters, you know, and now we consider him a great artist. Some do. Posters are why, that, that were just, you know, tossed up in the streets of Paris. Those posters are now extremely valuable and obviously massively reproduced. But it also calls into question, you know, can, you, what is the def- definition of excellence? And that is something that's being strongly challenged in the academy today, that, that, that excellence in and of itself doesn't exist. You know, that, that that is a subjective judgment generally made by white European males about what should be excellent, what should be preserved, what should be uh, respected. And, you know, if that goes forward, you wind up in just a free for all where everyone's musings or tweets or whatever could, you know, they can claim that they're art because, well, who are you to judge whether my production is great or not? Right. Well, then in some ways we, when we have no understanding or a common explanation for what is excellent, we end up with nothing. I mean, anything can be sort of revered and, and, and there's no filter and there's too much for one person to consume. So in some ways we, we are impoverishing our own culture in that sense. What should, when we are making these judgments, particularly in the contemporary among living artists, should we pay attention to whether they were, you know, abusers of their wives or whether they were, were you know, had uh, abhorrent ideas? And we all know and go through the list. I mean, Ezra Pound was a, a terrific writer and, and a poet, but, you know, he supported the Nazis. You can go through the list. And uh, Norman Mailer stabbed his wife. Um, so should these things be understood as part of that criteria when we're trying to kind of add to the canon or think about what the canon is and what is excellent? Or should we just sort of say, you know what, the work should be judged as the work and what the artist did with his life or the opinions of the artist had is nothing to do with it. And I think that that's where, you know, again, we, we're so selective. The other case I was thinking about yeah. uh, after you proposed this was Roman Polanski. Of course, right. And, you know, that standing ovation for him at the Academy Awards a couple of years ago when he got the Lifetime Achievement Award, he can't even come back into the country because of what he, what he did. You know, out, for, our, for our listeners, he drugged, I think, certainly an underage girl, I think she was 13 or 12, and uh, raped her, which is horrible. I mean, I mean, he was in Hollywood in the early 70s, which was a different kind of ethos at the time, but nonetheless, you know. Well, and he had been through some fairly horrible things himself, of course, but but still, it doesn't excuse, no. you know, a criminal act like that. But, you know, on the one hand, you have the Hollywood Academy, you know, going on, getting on their high horse about Me Too. And on the other, they're giving a, you know, standing ovation to Roman Polanski. So I think, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, the, the information we have, as spotty as it may be, is something that, that, you know, you as the viewer or the consumer of the content can, you know, you can filter that into your experience and your understanding of any given work or oeuvre. But at the same time, you know, that's that's not going to be consistent. You know, maybe just hearing Michael Jackson's music makes me uncomfortable. So I turn off the radio when it comes on. Or maybe I think the value of that body of work supersedes any personal transgressions he may have committed, but that's up to me as, as the individual consumer. And I just don't think it's going to be the same for everybody. 
Well, I think that's right. But I do think that there is a role that art historians like yourself, critics, various kinds of cultural elites play in kind of determining what is worth looking at, what is worth consuming, what will endure. And it does seem like we don't have a kind of consistent approach to this basic question is how do we account for, you know, the life of the artist when we're looking at these, at their works? Well, my first encounter with this going back a scandalous number of years was as a graduate student in Williams and sitting in on a survey lecture for the under, we were teaching assistants for the undergraduates. And the professor gave this lecture on Titian's Venus of Urbino, which for your listeners is a reclining uh, female nude. And she, it was an actual portrait specific woman who was the, the mistress of the Duke of Urbino. And this professor gave this just scathing lecture, not about the extraordinary beauty of it, not about Titian's amazing technique and, you know, sort of compelling presentation of this lovely woman, but it was all about sexual exploitation. And this woman had been exploited and this picture was evil and it was a document of exploitation and Titian was evil for painting it and the Duke was evil for having it in his study. And it just went on and on. And I thought, wow, you know, what is the role of this like retrospective virtue shaming in terms of, you know, these 200 kids appreciating, you know, one of the canonical pieces of, of the Western tradition. And, you know, if you start down that road, you know, the, maybe the Venus of Urbino is an easy target, but, but where does it stop? You know, what, what, you know, the, the, body of work that is acceptable under those circumstances is going to be awfully small, awfully quickly, just because these are all flawed humans. So I think I think I come into the camp of of wanting to include, as I said, as much of this information in the scholarship, but you know, then leaving it up to the consumer to how they want to use that information. So I what I hear you saying is that as a society, we are owed the great work of art, but we're also owed the truth about the artist. We are owed both the history and the art in that respect. And that that we shouldn't view this as a kind of paradox or a contradiction. Is that what you're saying? We should say that these two things are kind of complementary. I, I think so. I mean, I think, again, you know, it's so fragmentary, you know, and we yeah. only have this, we've got you know, 5,000 years of art in the West, and we've got 150 years of really having the details sure. of artists' lives. So, you know, it, it, you know, it seems to me significant. And I think, you know, I think particularly, you know, the Cosby case, as you raise it, is a fascinating one because he has been basically banned, canceled. Right. Um, and, you know, the, I understand you know, not wanting to, you know, pay him royalties, but it's not just him. I mean, all of the kids who are on that show have to suffer because he turned out to be a bad person. You know, they don't get their royalties either if all this stuff is taken off, taken off the streaming services. So I think, you know, I think being clear-eyed about what we're doing and in all of these cases, I always think, you know, if it makes you feel morally superior and virtuous, you probably should look at it again. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I want to, I want to sort of ask you though, but it does raise this really uncomfortable thing that seems it's, it's, I think it is difficult to accept, which is that it would be wonderful if the greatest artists, the people who we would consider sort of heroes of creativity led admirable lives they often do not but it's you know we're as grown-ups as adults we should be able to accept that that's that's the way of the world and that in fact we make exceptions all the time for very talented people can get away with behaviors i'm not talking here about the most extreme examples like violence or or rape or something like that i'm talking about just all, I mean, the, the expression of like, this person is such a diva. Well, that comes from the idea that truly phenomenal singers, female singers, 
act entitled like queens. Whereas we would never, we, you know, in normal life, we don't accept that from, from, from people. In fact, we, we identify you're acting like a diva. But if you are a diva, you get to act like that. And so it, to a certain extent, I mean, I'm just wondering, but do you think that we as a society kind of need to grow up a little bit and accept the fact that the, the most creative people who give us things that give our lives meaning and show us beauty and enrich our culture, you know, are, are oftentimes or a lot of times going to be bad people? I think in a way, maybe maybe this is a little bit perverse, but it, it can increase your appreciation for what they achieve. One of the thing about David playing about the book about art and democracy that made it such a compelling project for me was how human you know all of these folks were when you start to look in Pericles in ancient Athens, who's you know one of the most terrorized, lionized figures in history, and was a very flawed person and had all sorts of stuff going on, as did Phidias, his his chief sculptor and artistic interlocutor. And one of the reviewers, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, said it's it's disconcerting to have you know Phidias and Pericles jo- you know joking about prostitutes, but that's what they did. Right. I mean. You know, there's ample record that they both had a bad woman problem and, you know, treated models poorly and all that sort of thing, you know, which is sort of like what we have with with Gauguin. But for me, the fact that they are flawed and, you know, that they do go through, you know, these these struggles. But yet we're able to achieve at such an extraordinary level as both patron and artist of, of the Parthenon is is what gives these things meaning, you know, that, that. If, right. Because they are so human and it shows right. our kind of potential. Right. Yeah. They were Superman and, you know, somehow different from you and me and better, you know, it's the kind of eternal conundrum people get into with politicians is, you know, they want to project, you know, a kind of super ability onto charismatic individuals who appear to believe the sorts of things that you believe and they want you want to put your trust in them and that they're somehow going to take care of things. And then, you know, they're revealed to have feet of clay like all of us. You know, that that's, a, I think, a really important reminder. I think where we get into trouble is when we get into, you know, these cases where you have, you know, dramatically criminal inclinations and, and sure. figuring out how to grapple with that. Well, I, I want to end on an idea that you've been kind of hinting at here, which is that, is there a danger in the academy today of a new radicalism that will use the lives of, of artists who have done bad things as an excuse for erasing a kind of our cultural legacy and replacing it with something in, 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 the, in the way that all kind of radicals seek to do? Do you see what I'm saying? Like the idea of kind of inventing a new history and that this is a, a useful cudgel as we become more aware of, you know, many of the inequities and sins of the past of uh, some of these great creative heroes. I think there's a terrible danger of that. I am deeply concerned about what I'm seeing, particularly in the discipline of art history, which is, you know, what I track, but I suspect you could find it in literary criticism film studies, you know, a range of other liberal arts disciplines where the 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 morality of 2022 is being visited upon historic right. epochs that have no way of responding. Obviously, I mean they're over. And you know what's gone on with some of the the monuments, I mean the most famous cases are the Civil War monuments. Well it's a little different because it those, those those were not. Ex- I mean, it's it's hard to argue that they're works of art in the same way. Right, but, David, but right. what I'm what I'm getting at here is there's this case in Charlottesville over the last summer where the monument to Lewis and Clark was removed when they were taking down Lee and Jackson, just because somebody who claimed to be a uh, descendant of Sacagawea, which is not something that's easy to prove said that she didn't like the the representation of Sacagawea, who was included in the piece, and she didn't think she was sufficiently heroic. And for that reason, this was an intolerable insult and had to be removed. You know, that's an extreme case, but you know, people won't work on, you know, Titian's nudes anymore because it's seen as sexist and 
Really? And you, you, you think that that's happening right now? It's totally happening. And, you know, when I studied the University of Pennsylvania, we had five people teaching what we would call early modern. So Renaissance through the Baroque period, there's now one. The, the vast majority of graduate students are working on 20th century and contemporary art because they, they, they feel a moral repugnance towards the art of the past. It is colonial. It is imperial. It is not representative of a diverse society. And this, this is it's prevalent. And it, it's, it's a real problem because, you know, it's at what point do, you know, it, do the Mona Lisa and, and Michelangelo's David become irrelevant? Uh, because you know they're the pr- product of of white men who were in an imperialist society. But I don't understand uh, how could you how could you understand the significance of contemporary art without understanding that those works in conversation with the Western tradition. I mean that you know I mean you you talk about it in terms of Duchamp. I mean we can go through the list. I mean Picasso is meant is is so radical because of it's so different from what came before him in some ways. And when he breaks out of cubism, that's really significant because of what it says about the tradition that was before him. Oh, I, I think you're 100% correct. And that's really the point I was trying to make in the article. And, and if I if I pull myself together and actually do the, the book length version of that, the last quarter of it is going to be called Aftershocks. And it's about what you know, what the, the, the lingering effects to this day of what, what they did in 1503, but you have to check a lot of your virtue signaling and your retrospective morality at the door if you're going to accept that and also accept the premise, you know, that, that there is greatness in the Western tradition and recognizing that does not mean that you abhor all other traditions. You just you know, recognize what is particularly fine, good, and beautiful about this particular tradition, which we happen to be part of. And so I think I think it's it's almost a suicidal tendency in the in the academy right now. And it's it's why I think there's such a disconnect. I mean, it's why most major publishers have stopped publishing art history. Because people don't want to read it. It's awful. It's it's mean. It's it's sort of petty and it 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 you know not all of our discipline has to be uplifting and, you know, and, and engaging, but it can't all be this kind of, you know, tearing down of the very thing that you're supposed to be, you know, studying and preserving. Is there an opportunity in terms of, I'm just speaking of thinking of the Academy, is there an opportunity to sort of have, uh, to use the word of the moment, a vibe shift? Is there an opportunity to where, you know, there, there is a premium in, in academics where having an original insight or going against the trend used to be something that, you know, would be noticed because people were not making those arguments and there's always looking for kind of original critiques and criticisms. Is there a chance that this is kind of a phase or do you think that this is we're in it for the long haul at this point? No, it's definitely a phase because everything is, you know, everybody thinks right. we've arrived at, you know, the end of history. Well, no, it turns out actually we haven't. And I think for the Academy, what's going to happen is they are going to continue because they can't help themselves to escalate the price while they escalate the unpopularity of their product. And, you know, so you're asking people to pay 70, close to $100,000 a year for a product that is unrecognizable, you know, for, from what I experienced in college. And, you know, and, and, and a context that mm-hmm. is unrecognizable. And at some point, you know, folks say no. You know, there's a real at reason that Hillsdale's freshman class this year is the biggest one they've ever had. I mean, they can't, they, they can't you know, accept enough students. They're, they're physically la- limited by their plant because you know, folks look at that and say, I understand. I understand. I mean, you can agree or disagree with it, but I understand the educational project product that you are offering you're doing it at a comparatively reasonable price and you know the the kids that come out of there are highly desirable for their writing and analytical skills you know at, at what point did folks who were paying these exorbitant prices to send their kids to your harvard's browns god forbid your pens of the world say i you know this is not worth four years of my child's life i would have to push back there because i think that the value 
of those elite schools is that they are the kind of ticket into, you know, the elites. And it's, it's, a, it's a status and economic question. And, and I think a lot of these students will sort of say, all right, well, I, I got to take four years of these classes. This is what's being offered. And then when I'm done, I'll, I'll be able to get the most desirable jobs. And that's how it'll work. That's the way it has worked for the last 200 years. I'm just wondering if that if that phase may be seeing a real shift and, and that whether the schools would at some point need to adjust hmm. to some extent to continue to appeal. I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. Certainly, you know, the, the big name schools are, you know, have that enormous advantage going for them. Um, but it's also where the price is the most extreme and the product also becomes so incredibly extreme. All right. Well, I want to I want to wrap up this conversation and ask you one kind of final broad question. And that is what what in your view is the value of great art to this broader society? Somebody who is not, you know, in the field of art history, is not a curator, is not, you know, in that industry, but just sort of a regular citizen, why does art in that respect matter? I think it matters, Eli, because, you know, human beings from the very earliest time, from the cave paintings, have felt compelled to create art. It is something that is global. One of the few things in this world that are truly global, all societies produce art. And, you know, which which is a sort of a remarkable thing. You know, what do we need? We need fire. We need tools. We need, you know, food. You know, why do I need, you know, a, a copy of Udall's bust of, of George Washington? I don't need that, but it gives me incredible joy every day when I see it. And so that that is a universal. And as I look at the art of the past, you know, I see the art of the past as very much messengers to the present. The art history, when when done best, gives you unique insight into the past through through something that we have all universally experience. So when early 16th century Florentine gazed on Michelangelo's David, I'm having the same experience gazing on Michelangelo. Oh, that's right. It's and, a, it connects us through temporally through right. generations. Yeah. And I think that's attractive. And then finally, you know, I see these as documents, you know, if you, you can right. read Thucydides, you know, the, the Pericles funeral oration, and you can look at the Parthenon and that gives you a fuller picture of 5th century BC Athens than one or the other, that they, they are both documents of the past. And so if you want to understand history, you need to look at both. Oh, well, that is a great answer. And I really appreciate you helping us untangle the art from the artist and how we have to deal with these sorts of messy questions. And I hope our listeners kind of come away with this, that it, there aren't super easy answers to these questions it's not a it's not it's not entirely clear there are there are a lot of gray areas and it's very important to sort of think about this so i really appreciate you coming on the show and this was a great conversation i appreciate it very much eli good luck with it all right thank you this has been the re-education with eli lake a nebulous production please find us wherever you find your podcast and if you are listening on apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.